everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Jessica Bard, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. Community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, CABP, is a leading cause of hospitalizations in the United States. Dr. Chuck Vega is here to speak with us today about how CABP is generally treated and managed for the most common presentations. Dr. Vega is a clinical professor of family medicine, the assistant dean for culture and community education, and the director of the program in medical education for the Latino community at the University of California, Irvine, in Irvine, California. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Vega. What are the typical bacterial pathogens that cause CABP? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's always good to start with the microbiology of a given infection, but I think it's worth pulling out and kind of thinking about the scope of um, CABP a little bit. So community-acquired pneumonia, it's, it's amazingly common. So it accounts for 4.5 million outpatient and emergency room visits to the United States every year. And it's one of the most common reasons for hospitalization among adults as well. About 650 adults are hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia every year per 100,000 population in the United States. So it's something that we've all been familiar with, and we're pretty familiar with the causative organisms as well. So the, the biggest one is still Streptococcus pneumoniae, followed by Haemophilus influenzae. Moraxella catarralis is, is less common, but it's also there in those top pathogens causing COVP. But it's worth noting that the, the microbiology is changing with CABP. Pneumococcus is, is the most common bacteria, but the overall incidence of pneumococcal pneumonia is actually decreasing. And one of the big reasons for that is, is vaccination. So about 70% of U.S. adults 65 and over have received the pneumococcal vaccine. That's great. It'd be great if it was 95%, but we can see that the, that vaccine is having a difference. It's also having a difference at a much younger age. So we're now vaccinating infants routinely against pneumococcus, and that is protecting their grandparents, really interestingly enough. And so that is reducing the pool of pneumococcus out there because kids spread it fairly easily and can spread it to you know, more vulnerable older adults. I think it's also worth noting that respiratory viruses have been detected in approximately one third of cases of community acquired pneumonia. So while pneumococcal pneumonia is becoming less common, we're increasingly recognizing viruses as an important cause of community acquired pneumonia overall. What are the most common symptoms of CABP? Yeah, and I, I imagine a lot of the folks listening to this podcast are, can rattle them off too because they see these folks all the time. Those who present with a cough, uh, particularly a productive cough with sputum, having fever, pleuritic chest pain, having dyspnea. But I think it's worth noting that no individual symptom or even a constellation of symptoms is adequate for the diagnosis of pneumonia without chest imaging. So in one study, they looked at the positive predictive value of the combination of fever, tachycardia, rouse, and hypoxia, mild hypoxia, less than 90, 95% oxygen saturation on room air. And they took a look at these who had these respiratory co complaints pertaining to primary care and the positive predictive value of that constellation, which is certainly all of those things suggest pneumonia to me, the positive predictive value is still less than 60% when compared with a chest radiograph as a reference standard. So I, I think it's not always easy to identify based on symptoms and signs alone, particularly in very old and very young patients. Anybody who has some kind of potential immunosuppression can be a lot more subtle in terms of the presentation. We think about things more like altered mental status or just generalized fatigue could actually be a uh, symptom of pneumonia. 
Let's talk about the treatment guidelines. What are the treatment guidelines for patients with community-acquired bacterial pneumonia? The, the treatment guidelines that I generally uh, feel are most patient-centered and make sense in my practice in San Ana, California, come from the American Thoracic Society and were written in 2019. So in terms of a standard workup, you know, chest x-ray, PA and lateral is certainly uh, required. In some patients, especially those who are immunocompromised, as I mentioned, you might need a chest CT to pick up more subtle findings because they're not mounting a broad inflammatory response to the pneumonia. And for outpatients, which is the primary population I deal with, that's it. They don't necessarily need any more testing unless unless they're not improving or they have uh, some other outlying type of symptom or sign that really is concerning. They don't need other testing. Patients with more moderate disease who are admitted to the hospital, they should get a sputum gram stain and culture routinely. But even then, that might be the end of the trail. Chest x-ray, sputum gram stain and culture, that could be it if they are otherwise healthy and particularly if they respond fairly quickly to antibiotic therapy. But if the patient's more frail, if they have a number of high-risk conditions, if they're immunosuppressed, uh, then we have to think about a, a range of other testing. That's when blood cultures really can be most helpful, um, as well as doing a urinary antigen for pneumococcus. Um, considering even a Legionella PCR test would be reasonable, and then getting a multiplex PCR uh, in season for viruses such as influenza and RSV. And of course, now everybody gets tested for COVID. So that's going to go across the board. And I think as an overarching theme to the work of a patient with pneumonia is, is that at this particular moment in time in, in June 2021, you know, with the pandemic still going on, COVID testing is necessary for everybody. What's not necessary, but I see fairly frequently, even among outpatients, is the use of procalcitonin. That's generally not considered necessary to decide on whether to initiate antibiotic treatment for suspected CABP. That was a lot on workup. And then treatment is fairly straightforward. So among healthy adults with pneumonia, amoxicillin, one gram, three times a day, doxycycline, 100 milligrams, twice a day. I've used a lot of macrolides. I think they're good medications. Unfortunately, we see a pneumococcal resistance rising in this, in this country against macrolides. So therefore, macrolides are really should only be used if they the overall rate in the community of pneumococcal resistance is less than 25%. So it's definitely limiting. But I find that most patients do better on amoxicillin or doxycycline. Usually I'll give a seven day course if they have some concern regarding, again, immunosuppression or some reason they may not improve as quickly on antibiotics. I might, might do a 10 day course. If they have more chronic diseases present, especially lung disease, diabetes, which I see all the time, that's going to mandate treatment with amoxicillin, amoxicillin clavulin or a cephalosporin, and then added uh, in with either doxycycline or a macrolide. So there's going to be two antibiotic therapy for those more at-risk patients for complications. The other option is to use a respiratory fluoroquinolone in those cases, levofloxacin, moxifloxacin. Steroids should not be used routinely in patients with CABP, really reserved for those who are inpatients and who are doing very poorly. If they have septic shock, steroids could be considered, but they, if for a lot of healthy folks, they could actually reduce the immune response and, and make the infection worse. And then finally, I don't treat a ton of patients with severe community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, but for those patients, a beta-lactam plus a macrolide is generally recommended over a beta-lactam plus a fluoroquinolone, but they'll get both in-house, obviously, in, in the hospital via IV treatment.
Anything else that you think that we missed on that? No, these are the, these are the basics, but the, the basics uh, do you right. And, and with any guideline, of course, your clinical judgment with your patient supersedes the guidelines. So this is not a, a dic, you know, dictation that you have to do exactly these things, but I think it also helps you practice better stewardship of resources. We've been so mindful of that over the past year with the COVID pandemic in terms of not ordering unnecessary tests in terms of not ordering uh, unnecessary treatments that could spur more bacterial resistance over time. Thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Vega. We really appreciate your time. That was my pleasure.